This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Adirondack author Larry Gooley to the program. How you doing, Larry? Oh, I'm doing fine today. That's good. Uh, Larry has written many books on the Adirondack and North Country history. He was born in Champlain, New York, has lived in the North Country all his life. An avid outdoorsman, he has hiked, biked, climbed, and canoed throughout the Adirondacks for many years. We're going to focus on his uh, last two books, which don't really have to do too much with the outdoors, I don't think. They have to do with prison life. Among other things, uh, Larry, uh, the Adirondacks is home to some uh, major penal facilities, correct? Oh, yes. Several of them up here, especially in Clinton and Franklin counties. There were a few near Malone, and of course, we have Clinton Prison at Dan Mora. Uh, and the Clinton, uh, New York prison, Dana Mora, uh, was in the news a couple of years ago for a dramatic escape. And tell us that story. You were actually working on a book about escapes at Dana Mora when they had that big escape. Yes, um, I had chosen for my next book to cover uh, the majority of the history of Clinton prison. And I'd been working on it for some time, and then at the end of May that year, I decided uh, to switch over to a project I'd been promising people to do for some time. And it was just a month later when the incredible happened, these two men escaped from Clinton. So, Those two? Yes, uh, Matt, uh, Matt and Sweat escaped, and it was, um, I couldn't see any other way to do this than to make it chapter one of this book and try to finish that book before the end of the year, which I did manage to do. Now, uh, these two men escaped, Richard Matt and David Sweat. Richard Matt was killed um, when the authorities found him, but Sweat is still incarcerated and is, was in the news recently. Apparently, he was coming up with new escape plans, and they transferred him from one prison to another. Yes, he, uh, he talked about, he had this novel idea where he would explain how he could have escaped, so he used that to try to bargain for uh, certain privileges. But uh, that's uh, a bad idea at best. Okay. But um, it certainly was a, a dramatic uh, escape, the, the recent one at uh, Danamora. But um, I realize it was your second newest book. But you say there were other escapes from the prison, but maybe you had to go back some years for an escape like that? Yes, I, I covered the history of the prison, so when people would first look at this book cover with those two escapees on the cover, they weren't sure, and I always tell them, read the subtitle, because it begins with 170 years of escapes and tortures and other things that happened in the prison. So um, there were several stages of the wall that surrounds Clinton Prison, and the last one that we see today was around 1930, there was a major riot and then other major riots in other prisons, and they built up the wall and really tightened security down. But prior to 1930, there were many escape attempts and some, you would say, successful escapes, at least temporarily successful. Um, as I tell people sometimes at book fairs, if you read those stories, you might rate Matt and Sweat in the top three or so. You might rate them number one, but there are others that are really spectacular that – um, one of them did almost identically what they did, but the man had some engineering knowledge, and he managed to dig the tunnel by hand with the help of a couple of friends. So it's a really remarkable stories. Mm. And now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but who was, who was that one? Maybe he's like the contender for the uh, most dramatic oh, escape. Boy, the, the name escapes me at the moment. Um, 
they did manage to escape. They did manage to escape actually from one of those large pipes, and they were out for several days before they were finally caught. Um, yeah, I hate to use the word escape, but the name does escape me at the moment. <laughs> All right. Um, and Dan Amora, you know, I write local history about Amsterdam, New York, and uh, uh, I've been told that an Amsterdam construction company, Turner Construction, John J. Turner, uh, was among those that helped build the state prison, which I believe, you know, um, took place in the, what, the late 1800s or early 1900s. Yeah, it was in the 1840s, actually. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So it was like the middle of this. So maybe it wasn't the, well, maybe <laughs> I've been misinformed, or maybe Turner worked on later projects up there, because I imagine they continued to do work oh, uh, yeah, on the were, prison. You know, Sure, they yeah. added buildings and there were expansions, and of course, they, at different times, they worked on the wall itself and uh, raised it somewhat. Mm-hmm. Now, well, let's move to your to your new book or talk talk some about that, uh, which is called Danamora's Death House: The Crimes and Fates of Forty One Killers Sentenced to Die in Clinton Prison's Electric Chair. It, uh, every prison didn't have electric chairs, right? Right. Uh, back then, there were only three maximum security prisons in the state. You had Sing Sing, Auburn, and Danamora. And it was um, by 1890, the state had decided that the long-used method of execution, hanging, was barbaric and could re- be replaced with electrocution. So the decision was made that each prison would execute inmates. And, you know, I had to learn more about the story myself. And what they actually did was first they had a chair that would be set up at one prison and then moved to the other prison wherever the executions were being held. Eventually, each had their own chair. And another interesting aspect was that they didn't want publicity for the men who were doing the executions. You know, they might be harassed by family members or by convicts, friends. So they gave them the title state electrician. And there was actually only one man doing this who traveled from prison to prison. Really? Yeah, it was kind uh, of an now, unusual setup. Now, I uh, you know, kind of came across a story from this book that you had uh, printed or contributed to, I believe, the Adirondack Almanac, and it also appeared in New York History Blog. And I was, I was kind of interested in that story. And if you don't mind, I'd like to you know get into that in some some detail. Uh, it was a, uh, a call, or it, it was a murder, or the man who was murdered was a cook at a uh, logging camp. Uh, Adolphus Bouvia, is that how you say his name? Yes. Yeah, tell us about that. What, what, what happened to Mr. Uh, Bouvia? Well, I happen to know this area quite well. I've written a book about um, uh, a famous flat rock section near there where blueberries are a huge product. And I happen to know some of the people there, and so this was a, a story in my old stomping grounds, actually. Um, you know, I mentioned in the story there are several places named uh, Jerusalem and Jericho and things from the Bible. So a very religious area, and but also a remote area. There are many people who lived on their own, and that's, that was the case with Mr. Bouvier. So um, eventually someone... You know, he didn't show up at a New Year's celebration, and neighbors were suspicious at first, but you really tended not to pry. But after a few more days, they investigated, and they found him dead inside the house. And I was kind of intrigued by your opening paragraph, just about, 
you know, living in, uh, in the North Country and the things that went on there uh, is in that the uh, logging camps, people would, uh, the workers there would leave or often leave at Christmas time. Yes, they'd have a, a you know at least a major break right there where they could go see family and friends and of course do some of their celebrating at the same time, which they were very famous for in the Adirondacks, and then return yeah, to work. And Mr. Bouvier, and I believe you're saying Bouvier, so I'll probably go with that. Um, Mr. Bouvier had had gone gone home. He had had been widowed a year before, right? Yes. So he was living by himself at the time. Right. And, and how, what were the circumstances of finding his um, his body? Well, it was it was quite the gruesome sight. But you know that's part of the uh, popularity of some of these stories. And I don't I don't fudge in any of the details. Um, you know, when the men first went there to see their friend and couldn't find him, they saw blood and there were pieces of bone around the entrance to the house. But they went with the assumption that he had shot an animal or butchered something there and some of the splatter had happened. But uh, a few days later when, you know, he still wasn't seen and they went back and investigated, they found him inside and realized, you know, that half his head had been blown off and that it was it was his body parts they had seen outside. Ooh. Well, and can you tell us about the investigation? I'm just reading the, the first installment of the story that was in the New York History blog. Apparently there were... Uh, suspicions about one man, but they turned out not to be true and uh, kind of a back and forth until they finally uh, came up with the person they thought was the killer. Right. The suspicions were on a man named John Kinney, and Kinney immediately pointed them in the direction of someone else, a man who was, uh, you know, known criminal. He had been in jail several times, but, you know, nothing as serious as murder. So he pointed the finger at this man and that sidetracked the investigators briefly. But, you know, it's a case where when you travel a back road, you're seen by other people and they tend to not forget what they saw. And Mr. Kenny had been seen in that area by some of the men who actually discovered the body. And he was also in the process of moving to another village up here near Plattsburgh. Um, And this also involves some money and he was known to be almost dirt poor. So, uh, you know, suspicions returned to him even though he pointed the finger at a couple of others. So he he went to trial? Yes, he did eventually go on trial, and he was convicted, and he was sentenced. um, Back then, you know, it was a death sentence. You were first-degree murderer. He was sentenced to die in Clinton prison. And he actually spent, uh, I believe it was a year on death row there, and finally was granted a new trial. Oh, really? Okay. And to refresh his name for us again, who was the uh, person charged? John Kinney. John John King, are you saying? Like the no, king of Kinney, England? Or? Kinney, K-I-N-N-E-Y. Oh, John Kinney, okay. Kinney, yes. And, but, so he gets a new trial, and what happened there? Well, they eventually worked out a plea bargain, and um, actually the judge was against it, but you know, they he, it was pointed out that they could save the county a lot of money, and there were other issues involved. It would just save a lot of time and effort. So they went ahead, accepted the plea bargain. The judge actually said, um, I was loath to accept such a plea because he believed Kenny was guilty of murder. But 
And the difference was, and that's what I discovered in all of these cases, was if you can get something less than first-degree murder, then you're not going to be executed. The right. trial was hopefully, to, from the defense side, was just to keep you alive. So um, I may have ruined the story for you if you didn't finish reading it, because there is a, an unusual climax to it. Um, okay. He is, he is sentenced, and he does go back to Dannemora Prison. And as I mentioned, he, he was illiterate, so... He took advantage of the system and learned to read and write, but then just suddenly, years later, they found him hanging in his cell. Oh, really? Yeah. He took his own life? According to the prison, you don't get a lot of information from the prison systems. Even today, they're very tight-lipped about things at first, and his death wasn't even revealed till about a week later. So, mm. you know, people who knew were people inside. They just said he was found hanging and that it was a suicide. Uh, and, and just and back to the original crime, uh, th th this man, the, the lumber uh, camp cook, Adolphus Bouvier, he he was robbed. I mean, he had money, and, and the, that was the motive for the for the crime. The, the authorities believe. Yes, and a very good point was that some of the money that was missing it was just fortunate that it was identified because it had, I think, it said uh, either gold or silver certificates on them. And they're not very common, and he had been paid by some men locally with those. So that's the money that was missing, and that's what was found in possession of John Kinney. We're talking with Larry Gooley, Adirondack author, on the Historians podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. It's a new year, and we're launching a new Historians podcast fund drive. The goal is $5,000. We depend on your contributions and financial support to keep going with the Historian's Podcast. Please make a donation online at gofundme.com forward slash historians2018 or send a donation in the mail. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're speaking with Adirondack author Larry Gooley. His last two books uh, deal with the, the Dannemora State Prison up in the uh, Adirondacks. His most recent book is Dannemora's Death House, The Crimes and Fates of 41 Killers Sentenced to Die in Clinton Prison's Electric Chair. We just heard about one man who did not die in the electric uh, chair, but he, he did uh, die uh, at at the prison. Um, there, so there were forty one. You have in the title. There were forty one people who did die. But I gather at some point they stopped doing electrocutions at um, uh, Dannemora. You know, before the state abolished the death penalty. Yes. Well, actually, um, the subtitle is always important to me in, in selling books and explaining in very brief terms what the book is about. So there were 41 sentenced, but actually only 26 were executed. So okay. many, many of these are very involved trials, and there are many last-minute reprieves from the governor. Some men went through this three or four times. And if their sentence was commuted, it was often to life. So they still, most of them still stayed in prison, but 26 were actually executed. So when they pass a new law saying that execution would be by electrocution, Dannemora had to have their own death house like the other two prisons. And this started in 1890, 
but the first execution at Clinton wasn't until 1892. And this went on for a period of about 24 years. And finally, um, actually, the last man sentenced to die there um, received a reprieve, an unusual one. And um, that was, at, I think, at the end of 1913. And that mm-hmm. was the last time they executed anyone there. Um, the book and- really is in some ways similar to a book I did earlier, 25 Diabolical Adirondack Murders. Mm-hmm. Just really twisted stories um, and uh, the full details of the trials. Well, when I started this book, I I was going to do the 26, and then I realized there were many more who were sentenced there, but through um, very unusual arguments in court or, or whatever, they managed to get out of the death sentence itself. So it ended up being... 41 true murder stories. So people mm-hmm. who enjoyed that book enjoy this one as well because this has the details. Um, I, I managed to obtain the court records of each case. So instead of just relying on newspaper accounts, you actually have the testimony of all these different people who were involved in these cases. Really? Well, that's fascinating because, you know, writing, I write local history columns about Fulton Montgomery County and rely more and more on these uh, online newspaper archives. But as you say, there are other sources uh, that you can use. That's, that sounds very interesting. Oh, yes. I, I belong to many paid services, uh, online newspaper archives, and I use the free ones as well. Um, Ancestry.com is invaluable when you're doing research like this because one of the first steps you'll take is find the person's background, find all their census records, basically do their genealogy so you know about their private lives and their personal lives. And mm-hmm. from there, uh, also, you know, some of the archives have, especially when there are murders, there are appeals, and some of these have been scanned and they're available online, and you can find the full trial reports. So, you know, I, I really dig deep, and I need to know the beginning and the end of each story, or I just feel I can't tell the story. Mm-hmm. I uh, to put in a little plug, I guess, for someone I know who's written a, a you know another book about a murder, and that's uh, author Tara Norman, who uh, wrote a, a book about the murder of a, a farmer in uh, the town of Palatine in Montgomery County in the Mohawk Valley. And she calls her book The Vindication of Lewis M. Roach, because Roach was the man who was charged with that crime, and he was sentenced to die and, in fact, did die at Sing Sing Prison, I, I think after the executions were transferred to uh, Sing Sing, but there was always this thought that he really was innocent and would kind of been railroaded. And uh, she just sort of has all this chapter and verse because not only the newspaper columns, but because there was this big campaign uh, to prove his innocence, uh, apparently it's part of the state archives. Whoever was governor at the time, they kept all the letters and, and documents that were sent to the governor, and that had you know a lot more information than the papers did. Oh, yes. And in all these cases here, if there was um, a reprieve granted or a temporary stay, most of the governors preserved their papers, and you can find this online in their papers. They'll say, I uh, had a request from the certain attorney, and they'll say, I gave them another two weeks to... Uh, come up with more information, and then some of these went on for two or three weeks at a time. So you have verification right there in the governor's papers. And I, um, I mentioned earlier about the uh, state electrician. There's a, a side story to that was um, I had been I had read in different places where this famous slash infamous man, Robert Elliott, had been the executioner at Clinton Prison. Uh, Robert Elliott, for people who cover old murder stories or executions, 
he was very famous because he was the number one executioner in New York State history. He, he executed more men than anyone else. But I discovered that at the time when I was writing this book, he was the electrician at Clinton Prison. So mm. when it was time to execute someone, they would send you know a message from the death house to the powerhouse, and he would ramp up the power. But it was the actual uh, Mr. Edwin Davis, the state electrician, who would throw the switch that executed prisoners. And mm. uh, fortunately, Elliot wrote a book, and he gave many details on executions that he witnessed. And one of my favorite stories, and it's very unusual in this book, and it's, this is a very large book. It's about double the size of most of my books. So you really get two books in one for the same price. But I covered the story, and it's the first time I think it's ever been told in its entirety, of the Van Wormer brothers. Um, for people who, again, know a, a little bit about prison histories in New York State, it's one of the most unusual cases that three brothers were actually found guilty of murdering their uncle. And I covered the entire story from beginning to end, and the three of them were actually executed all on the same day at Clinton Prison. Really? Where were they from? Where, where, where did that happen, that crime? Well, you know, it's interesting to me that many of these, well, of course, it's the largest population in the state at the time. Many of these come from the general uh, Albany area, within 50 to 100 miles of Albany. And in their case, it's about 30 miles south. Um, Kinderhook was involved, so it's in that general area. Um, and really? that's where the Van Wormers were quite infamous themselves. How about that? I think Kinderhook is where President Martin Van Buren was from. No. Right. Yeah. I don't know that's why the, what difference that makes, but yeah, I think that's actually supposed to be the cemetery where these uh, three brothers were buried as well. Larry Gooley's uh, latest book, Danamora's Death House: The Crimes and Fates of Forty-One Killers Sentenced to Die in Clinton Prison's Electric Chair. I always enjoy talking with you, uh, Larry, about the process of writing your books and and your company and, and your life, if you will. Uh, in fact, we're, we're talking to you on a Thursday morning. It's snowy here in the Capital District of New York State. Maybe the snow hasn't uh, reached you up there yet. But you, you keep kind of unusual uh, hours uh, up there. Just kind of tell us what you and, uh, and your partner are, are doing in the publishing field. Yes, um, uh my wife and partner, Jill Jones, we created the company together back in 2004. And uh, since we do all of our work from home, uh, yes, we can create our own hours. So very often I'll be up at about, you know, 9 or 10 in the morning working, but we'll it's usually lights out between 3 and 4 in the morning. So we don't sleep a whole lot, but, um, uh, you know, I get excited about the work I'm doing, and when your brain is buzzing with activity, you just, you're anxious to get back to it. So... I, I work on my own books all the time, and we're also publishing, and I've taken on some editing projects for other people, um, publishing a lot of reprints as well. In fact, we have a nice collection of original Adirondack books from the 1800s that we've recreated, and um, I think we're going to add to those this year. Really? And your company is Bloated Toe Publishing, is that right? Yes, it's actually... The official name is Blotito Enterprises, but under that we have Blotito Publishing. Um, Jill does web design. She's created websites for businesses and um, different organizations and for individuals as well. So she handles most of that in the finances. And I, and she also, we actually have the capabilities to produce some books in-house. So she operates uh, binding equipment, um, 
the uh, printing, binding, and the guillotine part where you trim the book down to its actual size. So those books are part of our sales now. Did you say guillotine? Is that what they call the thing? That... <laughs> yeah, you know, most people pronounce it guillotine, the way you would chop someone's head off. Well, that's the name of the machine used to chop books down to their size once you've got them printed. That's how all the major printing companies do it as well. When you, you know, we learned all this as publishers that when you print the books, they're, uh, if it's going to be a six by nine, it's actually usually six and a quarter or six and a half by nine and a half. And at the end, the last step is to chop off those sides and trim it down to the exact size. Mm. What is your uh, next project or are you working on several at once? Well, my own is the one that I was actually working on back when the escape from Danamora happened. And uh, it's, it's very exciting to work on, I have to say, because it's covering the inside story of bootlegging in the northern Adirondacks. So in the northeast corner of the state is Rouse's Point, and on the other end, um, the northwest end would be Cape Vincent, and then you follow the line down to Oswego. I'll be covering everything from Albany North about what was actually done up north and who was involved, and it's just this is just going to be fantastic. It's such an exciting story to research because there's so much that has never been revealed before. Really? Well, I know that in the little, my little corner of the world, there there was a little airstrip uh, in the town of Amsterdam where supposedly the bootlegger planes would, would come in. But mainly, I think they were, you know, they, they came by auto, right? Mainly, yes. That was the uh, principal method of transportation was by car and truck. Oh, in truck. I was I would say is sometimes there were trucks weren't weren't they they used and um well this is below Albany so maybe you won't get into it. Uh, what's his name? Legs Diamond was involved in that. Yeah, actually um just coincidentally you mentioned that that's the uh the part I was just working on yesterday involves Legs Diamond because he moved up north here and was trying to take over some of the major operations and and it's it's just so unusual you know we never heard about this in our history classes or anything but how how the alcohol was brought across the border and then how it was distributed to villages and then distributed to cities it's just a remarkable story about who was involved it was complex right i mean it wasn't necessarily a simple thing oh right very complex and in uh, many in many cases, some major mobsters were involved in trying to run the operations from New York City and Boston, Binghamton, and Albany as well. Well, so when do you think the bootlegging book will be out? Well, I have I've run into a couple of issues. I'm hoping by the end of this year. You know, the the target would always be the holiday season if you can finish by then. The problem is just I have such a gigantic collection of information that it looks like it will almost certainly have to be two volumes because mm. there's just too much to report on and and so much important stuff and and things things that happened in small villages even up here where I live were actually discussed on the floor of Congress in Washington because it had such a bearing on what was happening across the state and the importance there is that as New York state went so went the country in most cases so you you know if New York was defeating prohibition most likely the rest of the country was going to follow suit. It was, um, you know, there was no state more involved than New York State. You mean in in uh, trying to stop um, the bootleggers or, or stopping the prohibition? Well, people here resisted the law. And, okay. and of course, yeah. you know, with the largest population, it became a huge deal in New York City 
in New York City, I mean, and off the shore of New York City and New Jersey, there were actually lines of boats out there loaded with alcohol from different places, and boats from uh, New York and elsewhere would dart out there and load up and come back in. And, you know, the police could only arrest so many, so many of them got by. And the other part of that plan was, of course, along the Canadian coast and the New York-Quebec border. Well, Larry Gooley will be looking for that uh, book about uh, rum running, if you will, and we'll be sure to read the subtitle diligently because yeah. that's important <laughs> with the Larry Gooley book. Uh, Larry Gooley, Adirondack author, uh, joining us. His uh, latest book, uh, Dan Amora's Death House. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutler. 